All right. Well, for those of you just joining us, we are in the process of, as a church, learning uh, in Melody one psalm a month. And so Psalm 91, which is the psalm that we just sang, is the psalm for the month of July and for the month of August. Psalm 8 will be uh, our next psalm. So I hope that as we've been declaring doctrinal truths through Melody and then also... um, learning and memorizing various psalms that it has been encouraging uh, to you to be able to sing God's word, declare God's word uh, to one another, to the Lord, uh, together each Lord's Day. Um, Well, we have been going through a series um, on our confession of faith, and uh, our confession of faith, which is the 1689 confession of faith, is uh, an old historic Uh, statement of faith that summarizes, much like other statement of faiths, uh, doctrines of the Scripture. And so this morning, uh, we are uh, looking at how chapter 19 in the 1689 summarizes God's law. And I'm not going to use quotes necessarily uh, as I often do from the 1689 this morning um, because the outline of the statement of faith uh, kind of follows if you will, the outline that I'm going to give you. Uh, And we're going to look at the law of God. And what I want us to keep in mind as we work through this is that God's law is good. His law is good. I don't want us in in the midst of discussing uh, this, working through this, for us to lose sight of that. And it's the law of God that shows us more about the character of God. And, and not only the character of God, but it shows us our inability to keep God's law and our need for Christ Jesus. And so uh, as we think through God's law, we should give praise and honor uh, to God for giving it to us. And, um, but I want to ground us. I'm going to read a couple of passages. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read a few passages as it relates to God's law. Uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give more of a uh, biblical survey of God's law to just kind of introduce us to how we should think about it biblically and, and by God's grace, uh, how it is relevant to us, how we can apply it to our lives. And so uh, in Psalm, and this is just a sampling of, of both Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 as it relates to the law of God. And, um, and I tried to give you in your notes this morning just uh, the areas of Scripture that I'm going to be pulling from so that you don't have to jot them down in a hurry as well as a, a, um, some uh, uh, key words that you'll want to be familiar with. But Psalm 1, the first two verses, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sa- stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, right? Walks, stands, sits, contrary to God's law, right? But his delight instead is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So blessed is the man, happy is the man right? whose delight is the law of the Lord, Psalm 119, if we were to flip over there, the very first verse is blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. On down verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, says the psalmist, and keep your law. Verse 97 of Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for this time that we have together as your church. 
God, we thank you that we can open your Bible and that you've preserved for us. Kept pure in all ages, our confession says, God. And, uh, and God, we can have confidence that what we're looking at is, in fact, what you've said. And, and so, Lord, grant us humility. Lord, grant us repentance where we need to repent. And Lord, in all things, help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And I pray this in Christ's name alone. Amen. Well, if you're, if you're taking notes, and, uh, and again, you'll see this reflected in the, the bulletin this morning, I'd have you jot this down. There are three types of laws in the Bible. Three types of laws in the Bible. Theologians call this the threefold division of the law. And this morning, that's how I'm going to organize my sermon. I'm going to do this from a a 20,000 foot view because there's no way that we can by any means be exhaustive on this subject. But I'm I'm hoping that uh, we can have a, a sort of, that the Lord would grant us sort of a practical perspective and, and help us to see how uh, having a right view of God's law helps to shape how we read the Bible. Right? Having a, a proper view of God's law, it's important. It's important. And, and, and it's my prayer that, that just a survey like what we're going to do this morning would promote just further study of this topic in our individual lives and hopefully by God's grace in the Small group context promote good, God-centered, unifying conversation. But the threefold division of the law is organized in this way. Moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law, which is also called judicial law. And, and I'll unpack all of this this morning, but I want you to have, up, have it up front because I think it'll help you follow the sermon. Now, the moral law of God is eternal and it's summarized by the Ten Commandments, okay? The moral law of God is eternal, and it's summarized by the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai. The civil and the ceremonial laws were given temporarily under Moses to the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. The the civil and ceremonial laws, and, and perhaps you'll see some of the relevance uh, of this for us even in, in this, but the civil and ceremonial laws are usually what non-Christians will throw at you and tell you that you must keep if you promote, say for instance, a biblical sexual ethic, right? which goes to show you that, that they perhaps don't understand the threefold division of the law. And, and for those of us that are often stumped by a rebuttal like that shows that we don't know it that well either. Right? But one one theologian says this, the ceremonial laws were copies and shadows. They were copies and shadows. The laws of the land, which are civil or judicial laws, give way to the decrees of earthly kings. And the Decalogue, which is another way of saying the moral law, the ten, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments, still spells out what it means to love God and love our neighbor. Now, I'm going to begin with the ceremonial law, and then I'm going to go to the civil law, and we'll end by the moral, with the moral law, because that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And so first, let's look at the ceremonial law. 
The ceremonial law is related to the nation of Israel's worship under the Old Covenant, okay? It's related to the nation of Israel's worship under the Old Covenant, which is, uh, think temporal sacrifices, think circumcision, think uh, dietary laws. Like if you were to read uh, Leviticus chapter 11, for instance, you would see dietary laws in there. If I, if I were to read a passage in, in Leviticus chapter 1 uh, that, that is in probably some of your Bibles, um, it, it has the, the title, the subheading, uh, the law of burnt offerings, I would be reading about the ceremonial law. And as Christians under the new covenant, right, Christ has, has come and there's something new about the new covenant. As Christians under the new covenant, we can see that God in Christ Jesus has done away with the ceremonial law. Just to read a few samplings of scripture for us that help, to, help us to see that or bring that into focus a little bit more. Hebrews chapter 10, the first four verses we see the preacher to the Hebrews say, say this. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered... Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood, and get this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's important. Right? I once heard a pastor say that, it, that if you want to understand the book of Hebrews, you need to understand the book of Leviticus, and I think that he was right in that. But Leviticus spends much of its time on the ceremonial law of God, and, and specifically how certain men from the, the tribe of Levi were to be priests for the, uh, on, on behalf of the people of Israel to God. These men would, uh, would give an offering, uh, a burnt offering, according to God's word, to temporarily atone for their sin, and then they would conduct offerings to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And this was to continually be repeated. And in our passage in Hebrews, we see how the preacher here connects the word. And if you're looking at this passage, and I would encourage you as much as you're able to kind of navigate the different places I would, I'm going to be to do this, but you see that the preacher to the Hebrews connects the word law to the word sacrifices, connects the word law to the word sacrifices. And, and this particular law according to the preacher of Hebrews, was, quote, a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And in saying this, the, the preacher to the Hebrews speaks to, in verses 1 and 2, to the deficiency of the ceremonial law. And secondly, and you see this in verse 2 here, to how they've ceased, to how they've ceased. And the point that is being made here is, is that these sacrifices that, that gave a reminder of the sinfulness of man uh, every year was done away with. 
was done away with. There, there's no longer any need for us to sacrifice uh, or, uh, or even for the, 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 the priest. There's no longer any need for the priests who offered the sacrifices. Christ, Jesus, is both the ultimate sacrifice and he is the final and ultimate high priest. Christ is, is the ultimate sacrifice, the final and ultimate sacrifice, and he's the final and ultimate high priest. The, the, the preacher to the Hebrews says this earlier. If you were to flip back a few chapters in Hebrews chapter 4 in verses 14 to 16, and many of you in ch- that uh, are familiar with church life, you'll kind of recognize this passage of Scripture. Verses 14 to 16, the um, The passage says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then, all right, here's the result of that. This is why this is so important that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and done away with by Christ. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, Christ, he's our high priest and he is eternally so. He became our high priest through his uh his humanity through his earthly ministry here on the earth. And and because he's both the final and sufficient sacrifice for our sin and final and sufficient sacrifice, our final and sufficient high priest, we can draw near, according to the book of Hebrews, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Not just draw near it, but we can draw near it as if we've got a right to be there. How audacious is that? Right? Think about the first century church here, hearing that sort of news, especially in the context of staying away from the Holy of Holies, by which if they were to enter unauthorized, right, only the men from the tribe of Levi could do so, they would be struck dead. The preacher of the Hebrews has the audacity saying, not only do we draw near to the throne of grace, but we do so with confidence. Right? That's tremendous. And perhaps... You know, we're so far removed from that that we don't feel the beauty of that in the way that the Hebraic church would have felt that. We can draw near with confidence, not because of anything that we've done or that we've fulfilled. We can draw near with confidence because Christ is the ultimate and final sacrifice and Christ is our ultimate and final high priest. We see uh, the Apostle Paul speak to the temporary nature of the ceremonial uh, law in Galatians 5. If you were to flip over there, you can see this in Galatians 5. This will be the last passage I show you just as it relates to the ceremonial law. But the first six verses here in Galatians 5, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness." 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In effect, Paul here is saying he's, he's equating circumcision with a requirement for the nation of Israel, a, a symbol of, of being God's children with living in light of the old covenant instead of living in light of the new covenant. And so circumcision here being the symbol uh, of, of people living as if Jesus Christ had not come. That's what the Apostle Paul's um, speaking to. He's speaking mainly to a Gentile congregation and he's rebuking them for mingling with Judaism. They were being influenced by false teachers that were binding the consciences of these Gentile believers in a way that was, it was indicative of Judaism, yet it was mixed with some of the pharisaical legalism that was characteristic of that day. But Paul is telling them that they're acting. Again, they're acting as if Christ had not come. They're acting as if Christ were not sufficient. They were acting as if Christ did not uphold the law. And while circumcision was a ceremonial law, Paul here even connects civil, ceremonial, and moral when he rebukes the Gentile believers and effect says, if you want to live as if Christ had not come, go for it. You've got to be a perfect man. But you can't do that. You can't do that. Therefore, you'd be cut off from Christ. All right? Circumcision has no bearing on your right standing before God. Being uncircumcised has no bearing on your right standing before God. All right? He's not speaking about some hygienic medical practice, although that is what that is. He's talking about the symbol here of this uh, indicating that... Um, uh, it, it, this, this, this symbol of being covenant children within the nation of Israel in the Old Testament that's been done away with because Christ in his new covenant has brought Gentile and Jews together. And he calls them the church. He calls them Christ's body. So it, it's, it's to embrace right? what Paul is telling the Gentile believers is, is, is that what they're doing is to embrace the shadow and reject the substance so embrace the shadow and reject the substance. Ceremonial law has been fulfilled and it's been done away with in Jesus. God's people are not obligated to uphold the ceremonial law. Christ came and Christ up, upheld its obligations. Now, let's look at the civil law or the judicial law. Right? The civil or the judicial law was related to the daily life and welfare of the people of Israel. It was related to the daily life and the welfare of the people of Israel. There were sins under the old covenant that were also crimes in the theocracy of Israel. Okay, There were sins in the old covenant that were also crimes in the theocracy of Israel. Adultery, for instance was not only a sin in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, but it was also a crime according to Levitical law. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Homosexuality was not just a sin. It was also a crime in the theocracy of Israel. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. 
If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. A rebellious and unrepentant son was not just sinful in the old covenant under the theocracy of Israel. It was also a crime punishable by death. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 23. says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn. brings a whole new meaning to the word stubborn, doesn't it? This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And look at this, verse 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This is just a sampling, just a brief sampling of some of the sins that were also crimes in the Old Covenant. And and as we read these passages, passages they if they make us flinch which let's be honest they do make us flinch right it's only because we don't grasp the holiness of god and we don't grasp the gravity of our sin and the punishment that our sin deserves and, and frankly, what we should clearly see from just a sampling of, of Old Testament civil law is that all of us are fully deserving of the death penalty and of the unending wrath of God. That's all of us, every single one of us. But look with me at the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 here. Paul says to the church of Corinth, quite a worldly church, not unlike the church of today, right? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, which we know from Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, that that's punishable by death, nor idolaters, which according to Exodus chapter 22, 20, we know is punishable by death, nor adulterers, Leviticus 20, 10, punishable by death, nor men who practice homosexuality, which is punishable by death, Leviticus 20.13. Nor thieves, which is punishable by death, Exodus 21.16. Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, which are abusers, punishable by death, according to Deuteronomy 22. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then some of the most precious words of Scripture, verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Right? Paul gives us a list that includes every single one of us in this room. None of us are off limits in that list. And at least six of the sins that he mentions here, according to the Old Covenant, are worthy of the death penalty 
Yet we, we have those sweet words of Paul. Yet such were some of you. How in the world do we go from some sins being crimes deserving of the death penalty in the Old Testament and seeing in the New Testament people who had done everything worthy of the death penalty? Because it's not that those sins are no longer worthy of the death penalty because they are, in fact, worthy of the death penalty. It's not that. But how do we go from seeing a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where most of the sins that are listed are in fact punishable by death according to the civil law of God and according to the old covenant there, yet we see people that are admitted into fellowship, that are admitted to the Lord's table and are being declared as washed, sanctified, and justified. How in the world is that possible? If we flip back to Deuteronomy 21, the passage where Moses says that, that rebellious, disobedient children are to be put to death, if we go back to that passage, and if we go there and we read the verses that immediately follow that, we'd see this. Verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now flip over to Galatians 3. Look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ Jesus was the cursed man who hanged on the tree. Christ received the death penalty for us. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Christ died in the place of the sexually immoral. Christ died in the place of the adulterers. Christ died in the place of those who have practiced homosexuality. Christ died in the place of idolaters and disobedient children and thieves. Christian, if you're in Christ, Christ died in your place. And he was bodily and eternally raised for your justification. That's good news for us. That's good news for us. Before I move on to the moral law and and we spend the rest of our time there, I want to point out something about the, the civil law quickly. And this is a... A bit of a rabbit trail, but I want to make sure that I mention it, and perhaps I'll do a sermon at a later date about it. But in the civil law, we find aspects of the moral law. In the civil law, we find aspects, and we've, we've seen this just with the, again, the sampling of Scripture that I've read you, but we find aspects of the moral law contained in the civil law 
And because of that, it makes it profitable for us to apply the moral principle of the civil law in particular cases. This in our confession is called the general equity of the civil law. General equity meaning that we can use moral principles found in the civil law God gave to Israel and apply them to how we love our neighbor. Allow me to give you one instance briefly. Deuteronomy 17.6, we see a standard given uh, by God to the nation of Israel by which transgressors of God's law can be put to death. It says, uh, verse 6, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, as we saw a moment ago, sins related to things like rebellious children and sexual immorality are no longer crimes because of the finished work of Christ, but there is a moral principle that we can apply, and we see Paul do this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 1. It says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Or as it relates to someone making an accusation against an elder, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, Don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What we see here is an example of the moral principle of the civil law being carried over. And, and by, by, by the moral principle, I mean that we can trace God's moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. We can find that contained in some civil laws. And so, for, for instance, for this, this example I gave you, you see the Ninth Commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Right? Paul is making a case for establishing evidence before charges against someone are made official. Right? Our legal system, for the most part in society, functions this way, generally speaking, and, and certainly we see why this is important. Right? Not only is it a sin to slander and bear false witness against someone, but it destroys lives. Right? How many times have we witnessed or perhaps jumped to conclusions about things that we see in the media before we have any evidence? Right, Twitter mobs is what's that, what that's called. It's, un, it's ungodly and it's sinful. How many people have been falsely accused, lives ruined because credible evidence was not established by two or three witnesses? It's good for us to apply the moral principle of a civil law like this to, to ourselves as individuals, to our church, to our relationships with each other, and certainly to our society. The way that the text puts it is it, it's, it's better for uh, a, a guilty person to go free rather than for an uh, innocent person to be accused and given the death penalty or given a sentence. And so two or three witnesses. So that's, that's just a brief example of how the civil law, um, the moral principle of it can be carried over. But the final division of the law I want us to see is the moral law. The moral law. A friend of mine and, and another pastor in our community uh, named Ron Davidson, he summarizes God's moral law this way, and frankly, I haven't found a better way of summarizing it. So he says, The moral law is written on the hearts of man, summarized at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, preached by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, right, Matthew 5, upheld by Christ through his active and passive obedience, and can joyfully be submitted to in light of Christ's finished work. And if you want that definition, I can certainly get it sent to you in an email. The moral law is written on the hearts of man, 
summarized at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, preached by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, upheld by Christ through his active and passive obedience, and can joyfully be submitted to in light of Christ's finished work. Right, the, the Old Testament even speaks to the law of God being supports this sort of definition. We see Psalm 37, the law of his God is in his heart. It's verse 31, his steps don't slip. All right, we see Jeremiah 31, 33. This covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Right, and perhaps one of the clearest passages that we have, Romans chapter 1 and even Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. When Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, right, it wasn't handed down officially to the Gentiles, but to the Jews, when they don't have by nature... They don't have the law by nature. Do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Both Jew and Gentile, it's clear from Scripture, have the law of God written on their hearts. And this precedes, and when I'm saying law here now, of course we're talking about the moral law. And this precedes and outlasts Moses, although Moses summarizes God's moral law in the Ten Commandments. But we know from the Scripture that our conscience bears witness to the fact that God's law is written on the heart of man, and our conflicting thoughts bear witness to it as well. This is why even the deeds of the wicked are often done in the dark. That's why St. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they find rest in Christ Jesus. We know good from evil and what we ought to do and not to do, but not because we're, we're, we're so clever, but because God created us in his image. We're image bearers, and every single person created in the image of God knows that God exists, Romans chapter 1, and ultimately that we're going to give an account to him. It's our unrighteousness that suppresses that, to, that suppresses what we know to be true in our inner person. And, and what is this moral law written on our hearts? As I said, we we see it summary when Moses gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And in the Ten Commandments, we see what theologians call the two tables. The first table consists of the first four commandments and deal with our love and our worship of God. We see commandment one, we're to have no other gods before the Lord. (coughs) Which means that we're to worship the Lord only. The second commandment, we see that we're not to make graven images, even in honor of God. In other words, we're to worship in the way that he's prescribed for us to worship. We can't even invent how we worship. God told us not just that we worship him alone, but we can't make up how it is that we worship, how it is that we do worship. We're not allowed to do that. Three, we're not to blaspheme. We're to reverence the name of our holy God in our dealings with him and in our dealings with other people. And then the fourth commandment, often neglected commandment, we're to cease from our normal labors and delight in God and rest 
one day in every seven days. In the Old Testament, this was Saturday, God resting as a pattern in light of finishing uh, the creation of the world. In the New Testament, because of the bodily and eternal resurrection of Christ, which was on Sunday, um, they, that inaugurated a new creation. We're new creation in Christ, and the uh, first century church began to meet on what was called the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. Those are the first four commandments, or, or the, the first table. Right? So it has to do with our devotion, our worship, and our fidelity to the Lord. But the second table includes the last six commandments, and it deals with how our love and devotion to the Lord should spill over, into our, into, in, intentionally spill over to other people. Right? We see in the fifth commandment, we're to honor our mother and, and father. Right? This is not necessarily obedience if what is being required is to dishonor God, but this is an uh, honoring of authority that God has placed in our lives. We see that we're, we're not to murder. This also means that we're to labor to preserve life. We see that we're not to commit adultery, which means that we're to be faithful to the Lord through our fidelity to our spouse, both in our, uh, at the heart level and in our actions. We're not to steal, which means we're to work hard and we're to labor to protect personal property. We, shall not, we sh- shouldn't bear false witness, which means that we're obligated to tell the truth. And we shouldn't covet what others have, which means we should be content. I mean, I mention these in the way that I do to show, A, the, the division, that the, the, the first table of the commandments has an impact on the second table, the back six commandments. But secondly, I mention these in the way that I do to show you that there's a negative and a positive element to these commandments. And I'm not even being exhaustive here. But in these, you should also see how the civil laws and the moral law intersect at some points. Not all points, but at some points. But to violate aspects of the moral law under the Old Covenant was, in fact, punishable by death. Now, we don't need anything from the Old Testament to be repeated in the New Testament for it to remain true. That's just a bad hermeneutic. But Christ does, in fact, reassert the moral law in the New Testament, and we see it in multiple places. For instance, I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. There we see Christ speak to our obligation to obey the moral law. But we also see a more succinct statement in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, and it's here you can see the clear division of the two tables in the Ten Commandments. He says, he's being asked, Jesus is being asked, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. It's the first four commandments there in summary. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the back six commandments. It says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, the first four commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that's your kid's memory verse uh, right now, by the way, in, in kids' ministry. And then the second table, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Christ shows us, this is the summary, quote, verse 40, of all the law and the prophets. Now, now, as Christians, we know that there is no way that we can uphold the moral law of God. That's why we need Christ. And as early as Genesis, we see Adam transgress God's revealed will not to... To, to, to eat, his revealed will not to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil. Right? We even see Cain murder Abel soon following that. We see passages like Romans 3 that remind us that no one's good, that no one seeks for God. And 
We also have passages like James chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. I'll read it briefly here. And it leaves us in a position showing us that there's no way that we can remedy our state apart from outside intervention. James says, verses 8 to 11 of chapter 2, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. James says to fail in one point of the law is to fail in the entirety of the law. We clearly need Christ who upheld the law perfectly for us. And in seeing Christ as the only one who upheld God's glorious standard, I want us to see that God does expect us, he does expect us to do his will in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not earning our justification, but working from our justification by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers. And his will God's will, his enduring moral will is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And historically, Christians have confessed three primary functions for the moral law of God. And I'm going to give them to you briefly. And then we'll, and I'll give you some takeaways and we'll shut down. But function one, it shows us the righteousness of God and our own unrighteousness. The moral law of God shows us the righteousness of God and our own unrighteousness, our own sinfulness, right? We need Christ, truly man, truly God, to remedy this. We need the one who upheld. Only God could fulfill God's demands. Only God could fulfill God's righteous moral law. Secondly, it helps to restrain evil action through threats of judgment. Law of God helps to restrain evil action through threats of judgment. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks in more detail. But even the government, Romans 13, is required to promote aspects of God's law. But the law of God being documented clearly in the Word of God, and even so, more so on our hearts, is a means by which God restrains evil by His Spirit. It's the pessimist that that says things can't get any worse, and it's the, the optimist that says, sure they can. All right? You'll get that in a minute. But, the, uh, but one of the functions of God's law is to help restrain evil. Evil doesn't flourish as it could apart from the res- um, because of the restraining effect by God's Spirit on the hearts and lives of individuals. Um, and so if you, truly, if you think it couldn't get worse, it in fact could. Function three, it is a guide of God's revealed will for his people. Right? So one, it shows the righteousness of God in our own sinfulness. Two, helps restrain evil, evil action through threats of judgment. And three, it's a guide of God's revealed will for his people. Right? That age-old question, what's God's will for my life, uh, can be summarized by the first and second table of the moral law of God. Love and devotion to God, and from that, loving our neighbor. And in these Ten Commandments, or in these Ten Words, as they've been called, uh, are in fact binding. To break them is still sinful. It's still sinful to break them. The sinfulness of them has not been abolished. The requirement of circumcision and temple sacrifices and the criminal nature of being a disobedient child has been abolished due to it being fulfilled in Christ. But Christ has not abolished the sinfulness of sin. He's not abolished the sinfulness of sin. 
And because Christ came and upheld God's moral law perfectly, and because we are in Christ, the moral law can be kept joyfully by those in Christ, albeit sinfully and imperfectly this side of eternity. So we say of the ceremonial law, we're no longer offering sacrifices for atonement. What God has declared clean, no man can declare unclean. We say of civil law, Christ received the death penalty, therefore I may live. And we say of the moral law, Christ upheld it, and by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can submit to it. What we don't say is I'm no longer obligated to love and serve God in this way. He prescribed for me to worship him. He prescribed for me on how to love my neighbor. Therefore, I must do so with his help. So a few takeaways for us this morning, and then I'll close in prayer. The first, the civil law, or excuse me, the ceremonial law was a shadow pointing toward Christ, who's the substance. Christ is our final and sufficient sacrifice. He's our final and sufficient high priest. Secondly, Christ was treated like a sinner and a criminal so that we may become exonerated saints. Three, Christ took the civil punishment for our breaking of the moral law, but he did not abolish the moral law. And four, Christ took the wrath of God upon himself for the breaking of the whole law so that we may be fully forgiven and reconciled to the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we thank you for... This day that we've been able to come, God, that you've declared good, Lord, that does mark new creation because Christ came in this world and resurrected in this world, Lord, and this world is waking up to that reality. And so what we're doing this morning is a picture of what will spread, Lord, as the gospel continues to go forward. And so, Lord, help us to be lovers of your word. Help us to be lovers of your law. Help us to be grateful for Christ stepping in our place, Lord. And God, as we remember his spilled blood and his body crucified for us through the Lord's table, this means of grace you've provided, strengthen our faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.